Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I'm talking to Eric Johnson, an adjunct instructor for Portland Community College, the University of Portland, and Southern New Hampshire University. Today, Eric and I are going to discuss his academic and professional background, his research into Austrian nationalism between World War I and the early Cold War, and his career as a full-time, part-time adjunct instructor. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, My name is Eric Johnson, and I guess I'm essentially a full-time, part-time history instructor. Um, I teach currently at Portland Community College primarily, um, and also at Southern New Hampshire, um, and I have taught at, <clears throat> excuse me, the University of Portland, as well as the University of Phoenix, and then I did some graduate teaching at Portland State when I was working on my master's. Okay, great, and I think we're going to come back and talk about the teaching experience um, in a little bit, but before we get there, let's let's go back in time a little bit, and can you tell us a little bit about your academic and your professional background? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess if we go way back. I, I had an interest in history from quite a young age. Um, I think a lot of that is, is due to my, my dad's influence. He's been a history buff and kind of got me interested in that. Um, and so I, when I started undergrad at University of Portland, I started off directly as a history major. Um, and as I kind of went through, my thought was I wanted to get a, an advanced degree and be a professor. Um, And so in undergrad, I worked primarily on modern Europe and modern United States. My thesis was a historiography of appeasement, um, which was kind of an interesting project. Hmm. Um, But by the time I got to my senior year and was kind of wrapping things up, I was a little burned out on school. So I decided to uh, go into the quote unquote real world. Um, and I had a couple jobs doing in, in sales and oper- uh, operations. Um, and then we moved to Denver for a while. My wife was getting her graduate degree. Um, and so it was actually six years after I finished my, my bachelor's that I decided to go back to school. Um, and so I ended up at Portland State, um, which has a really, a really good master's program. I was really pleased with it. Um, and my focus there was uh, modern European nationalism um, and my thesis research specifically was around uh, Austria and kind of the mid 20th century. Um, And then 20th century United States was kind of my secondary field, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's kind of my academic background. Do you mind talking a little bit about your uh, thesis research? You were, you wrote on Austrian national identity. What was, what was that project all about? Um, Well, it kind of started out with a couple seminar courses that I had. I took one on, it was called Nationalism and National Identity in Europe. Um, and then I took another seminar on World War I in Europe in grad school. So that's kind of where I got the uh, initial idea of working within the field of nationalism. Um, and then Austria specifically came from the fact that I spent a year, my sophomore year in undergrad, uh, living in Salzburg. So I was kind of immersed in that. I minored in German. So I figured, you know, I could do the primary source research on a topic with German as the language. So that's kind of where I got started on it. Yeah, eventually it it turned into, you know, I wrote some smaller papers for these seminar classes and then eventually turned that into my thesis. And in, in essence, you know, Austria is kind of a, I think, a very cool example of the idea of 
the social construction of identity because you can see them going through these phases. So I started in 1918, right, when they've lost the war, their empire is disintegrating, um, and they're essentially kind of trying to create a new type of national identity. And they tend to, at this point at least, really fall back on this idea of being ethnically German. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually a lot of people in Austria at the time want to join with Germany, but they are not allowed by the Allies because essentially I think they don't want to reward Germany with territory for losing the war. Right. So I, my first chapter kind of follows this, this idea of um, the ethno-cultural nation and how Austria sees itself as part of this larger German nation. Mm -hmm. uh, the middle chapter focuses on how this kind of changes a bit once the Nazis come to power, because there are groups within Austria, even the fascists in Austria, who don't necessarily want to be part of the German Nazi movement. Mm -hmm. um, so they start emphasizing that they are still ethnically German, but they are part of a different, I think they use the term Stamm, which roughly translates to tribe. So they're saying, yes, we're part, we're Germans, but we're different, and we don't want to be a part of your Germany, essentially. <laughs> we're, part um, term, we're, we're German, but we're not that German. <laughs> yes, we're not those kind of, we're not pr militaristic Prussians, we're, right. we're cultured Austrians. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's definitely a little bit of kind of chauvinism in there as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last chapter covers... 45 to 55, so the post-war era, and there's this, I mean, it's literally like a 180, a total flipping of the switch, where they regard themselves not as an ethno-cultural nation, but as a, basically a kind of a civic liberal nation, and they try to essentially make this argument that they were never German, you know, we were always Austrian, um, you know, and then they go on building this new type of um, identity in the wake of the war, which obviously, you know, there's a lot of pragmatic reasons for doing that, trying to kind of escape the guilt of the Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, to, to me, it's just this fascinating kind of look because they, they, they go through these very concrete stages of nationalism and they're very explicit about how they're doing it. Um, and so one of the, I, I would argue, one of the kind of new things I bring into to my research was this concept of passive versus active construction of identity. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, the interwar period, I refer to it as kind of this passive construction because the way they speak about it is as if it's self-evident that they are Germans. Um, and like, of course we are, and you know, all these reasons and they kind of get into that. And then from 45 to 55, they very, and oftentimes explicitly state like, we have to create a new Austrian national identity and we need it not to be based on culture, but more on politics and history and things like that. So it's, I found it to be a, a really interesting and kind of fascinating topic. How do you as a historian actually track the construction of national identity? It's because it's, it's not something where you can just one day all of a sudden the Austrian people just believe this about themselves. There's, there's some inner debates going on. Is, is it, so are you, are you tracking this through book publications or the rhetoric that Austrian leaders are, are presenting to the people? How, how do you actually, yeah. as, a, as a historian, kind of as a methodological question, how do you right. show that happening? Right. That's, yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, with a master's thesis, I had a relatively limited amount of space. So my mm -hmm. first, I guess, decision was political or cultural. 
Um, and I, I went the political route and yeah, I, I kind of what you were mentioning, I tended to track primarily political rhetoric was kind of my main sources. So it was um, a lot of speeches, um, party platforms, mm-hmm. newspapers. Try, I mean, th- that was definitely the main source base. I mean, I, I did have some cultural things in here and there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was mainly looking at kind of elite political rhetoric because at least my argument was identity construction in Austria, I think because it's so condensed and it's in these very fraught international situations, a lot of it is being driven top down. It's not really grassroots like it is in some other situations. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the in, in terms of how I approached it. My my argument was, you know, because of the way this is happening, I think looking at this kind of top down makes the most sense. And really, you know, one of the other things that I argued was there's not a ton of internal debate. I would argue within Austria. In the interwar period, I mean, there's definitely gradations and there's a spectrum, but pretty much everybody from socialists to eventually the fatherland front all agrees that Austrians are German. Mm. They want to do different things with that, but they all kind of agree on that essential point. And then from 45 on, really at the elite level from the communists to the, I guess, what's it? I think the People's Party, the conservative party after the war, Mm. they all agree we are Austrians period. So it's, it's very interesting to see, they, I mean, they do just flip on a dime. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think that in the United States, I, I suppose we're a little bit spoiled in that we've kind of had this long continuity. And so we don't really see national identity changing on a dime like that. So it's really interesting to hear that happening in other countries. I mean, that it, yeah. I understand why, because there are the traumatic moments like World War II and the, the rise of the Nazis and all of that, that is a problem that those other countries face that we have not had to face in the U.S., thankfully. So it, right. it is interesting to hear, though, that other countries' national identity is fluid and it can change. And that's, I think that can be difficult for some Americans to understand. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, yeah, that's one of the big things about national identity is how, how malleable it, it can be. And I think, I mean, really in the United States, though, I mean, we are ideal is that we are kind of a civic nation where ethnicity is not the central point of what it means to be an American. I mean, we talk more about politics and, and history and ideology and culture and that kind of thing. But I mean, you look at our history and there's obviously it's littered with examples of us taking a much more kind of ethnic nationalist bent and saying, no, there, there's a certain usually kind of wasp ideal that that's what a real American is. I mean, you look at the immigration debates in the early 20th century, I mean, quite frankly, you look at some of the rhetoric right now, mm-hmm. and I think we're having another kind of argument about what does it mean to be an American, and are we truly a, a civic kind of liberal nation, or are we more of an, an, an ethnic nation? So, I mean, that's a debate we've had, well, I guess really ever since massive waves of immigration started showing up in the you know, 1840s, 50s, 60s. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. And it also, when you look at things like the civil rights movement, all of a sudden that was a pretty rapid change in kind of our self-definitions of who is a citizen. I mean, during Reconstruction with the passage of the 14th Amendment and all of that, that we, we did have, that's true, we did have fairly brief, dramatic, not brief, but sudden dramatic changes in what it mean, what the definition of the average American is or the American national identity, because suddenly 
yeah. uh, faces are in the crowd that aren't in the that weren't in the crowd before. And so, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. I, I, I didn't think about it that way. That's a, that's an excellent point. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Actually, there's a. So you just passed well, your thesis look. defense. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I graduated finally. Yes. There's a. Um, how old is this? It's actually, it's a little bit old. It's from 2001, um, but I read it in grad school. It's called American Crucible, Race and Nation in the 20th Century. And it basically kind of tracks this back and forth we have between being more civically nationalist and being more ethnically nationalist. So hmm. if anybody's interested in that topic, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good read. It's by Gary uh, Gerstel. I know of it. I don't. Th I remember people reading it when I was in grad school, and I, I'm actually kind of surprised yeah. it wasn't on my reading list. But yeah, it, I, I do know of it. But that's that's good. I'm going to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, yeah, it was a good. It was a good read. Awesome. All right. So you mentioned uh, before, um, and this this kind of this question may actually not take us anywhere interesting, but. You mentioned before that between your between your BA and your MA, you went out and did a few other jobs. Uh, you, you mentioned a sales job. When you were doing that, was any did you find your skills as a historian useful in any of those temporary, even if it was a temporary job? Did you find anything useful in what you had learned as an undergrad? Huh. I guess I mean only in one respect. So my first, the very first job I got out of college was at ES, Educational Tours. Have you heard of them? Mm -mm. Uh, so they, they mainly target uh, high school teachers to take their students on these trips abroad, mainly to Europe. Um, they do some college tours as well. Anyway, so I was uh, just a sales rep for them. So I was calling high school teachers, usually back east, trying to convince them to take their students on these wonderful trips. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will say, I don't know necessarily the skills I learned as a historian, but Certainly in the content, you know, if they were saying, you know, I'm an art teacher, what would be a good tour? And it's like, okay, well, I, I've taken art history. I've been to a lot of these museums. So I, I felt like in that sense, I could kind of help with ideas for good tours and things like that. My next kind of longer term job, um, I worked for Subway um, in their corporate office. I was essentially like a, an operations auditor. Mm. I'm going around making sure they were doing everything right in the in the local franchises and that I don't know I can't I mean I don't think I feel like both I mean those are the main jobs I had some other kind of smaller stuff in those six years but sure. I think ultimately what was happening was I just realizing I was not really getting any sort of intellectual fulfillment out of either of them Gotcha. Um, which is ultimately why I decided to go back to school yeah no I, that actually mirrors my career a little bit too i graduated with I got my BA and then I went straight into my MA and then after my MA I kind of floundered for a bit wondering what I was going to do next and found you know found a, a, a government job and all of that and then eventually yeah same thing with you I got kind of bored of it and just got to go back to uh, grad school that's that's fine yeah. I was just uh, one of the other things that I've kind of been interested in lately and one of the things that most universities are kind of having to grapple with, especially liberal arts and humanities departments, is how do we make ourselves relevant in other fields that aren't obviously history-related fields? And so how do you talk about the various skills that we learn in history degrees that can be used in completely, you know, seemingly unrelated fields like, you know, law or uh, retail or anything like that? And so... I always like to ask people when I'm uh, talking to them about, you know, in your in the jobs that 
don't have history in the title or in the job duties, you know, what, what did you, what did you get out of, out of history that was useful in those positions? And, you know, it's kind of hit and miss, but it's still, it's interesting to talk about. Okay. So you did those jobs between your, uh, your various degrees and then you went back and got the MA degree. So after the MA degree, how did you approach the job search once you were done? What were you looking for? What were you hoping to get? And how did you proceed with your, your career search? Well, I mean, my, my intention, certainly the, with graduate school, was to, to get a degree so I could teach. So I, I finished up in uh, December of '09, And then so basically once the new year started, I just I think I applied to basically every community college within, I don't know, 75 miles of Portland, <laughs> probably. Right. And then I applied. So the, the main one in, in town here is Portland Community College, but we, we have at least two others that are kind of pretty close to the metro area. And then we have some that are, again, at least one, two, three, I think four others I applied to that were within that kind of radius. And then I applied at University of Phoenix as well. And so the first, the first job I got uh, was at University of Phoenix that started in August of 2010, teaching U.S. history. Um, and so, you know, we just went through the interview process there, did a, a training session with them. Um, and then kind of as that was starting, I got a call from Portland Community College, um, basically looking to add people to their adjunct pool. Um, and so I went in for an interview on that. Um, and I think I lucked out to some degree, my department chair, who is actually still my department chair, had also gone to Portland State and had done we, we both won the uh, same award for our papers and we both had been graduate assistants. And so she kind of pulled my resume out of the pile and said, Oh, let's, let me call this guy. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, some of it's just blind luck yeah. to, to some degree, I think. Um, anyway, so I started, she gave me a, a, the, they do a Western civilization series. There it's three parts. So we teach 101 in the fall, 102 in the winter, 103 in the spring. So she gave me kind of a trial run of that. Um, and so I continued at Phoenix teaching and then at, at PCC the next academic year, she added another section. So I had two classes each fall, winter, spring, and then eventually worked up to uh, three classes, which is the maximum I can get as an adjunct per term out there. So I'm assuming, you know, enrollments change, but as long as my classes fill up, I, I get a, a pretty good um, amount of work there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, I guess I started in January, 2012, um, I got hired at university of Portland, which was my, where I got my undergrad. And so the department chair there at the time, um, was actually one of my professors. So I went in and talked to her. And so she was able to give me, um, a, a few classes here and there. I'd usually have, they're on semesters. So they have fall and spring. I'd usually get one class there every term. So, and I kind of, I quit working at Phoenix once I got the University of Portland job. Um, and between those two, really everything was going pretty swimmingly for about, oh, I don't know, four years or so. And then the last two years, I'm sure lots of people have this, this concern as well. We've, we've had enrollment issues both at Portland Community College and I guess University of Portland isn't really, um, we're not really having issues with enrollment. We just don't have as many history majors anymore. So I think mm-hmm. some of the full-timers are having to teach the survey courses that would normally go um, to adjuncts. So right. actually, I haven't taught at UP for, 
uh, since last fall semester, um, and they don't really have much for me currently, so I'm kind of on hold there, and that mm-hmm. was actually the impetus to apply at Southern New Hampshire is I kind of lost basically one of my my gigs, you know, right. so it's, you know, it, as you know, as an adjunct, I mean, so much of it is just trying to piece together enough to to keep it afloat. Right. And it's, yeah, and that's a difficult um, life. <laughs> yeah. And when I was, very <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, back in the day at my peak, I think I've told this story on other episodes, but anyway, at my peak, I was teaching nine courses f- at five different campuses. One or two of those was oh, online, gosh. but yeah, it was ridiculous. And with that, yeah. I mean, even with nine classes at that point, you know, I was living fairly comfortably with nine classes, but then, you know, that so. was temporary. <laughs> and then the next, yeah, next semester I was back down to three or four or something. So it was, it was a weird confluence of events where a full-time instructor got sick and had to uh, back out of a class. And so I happened to be in the right place at the right time. So I just, yeah, yeah so, which is kind of reminiscent of your experience there too, is right place, right time, who do you know? We like to think of academia as being a meritocracy, but the reality is a little bit uglier. <laughs> there is a lot of yeah, luck involved. There's a lot of who you know. And so I know in earlier episodes, we t- we've emphasized the need for everyone to engage in as much networking as they possibly can. Uh, when they're in school, when they're out of school, you got to get to know people uh, in various corners of the world and with the hope that something will come out of that. I mean, you don't want to necessarily approach every relationship as some sort of exploitative transactional type thing, (laughs) right? you know, networking can pay off in, in, in in more ways than just friendship. (laughs) So it's really good. I agree. Yeah. I I I tell my daughter, like, you know, I got this job at UP because I was a good student in college and she wanted to hire me. <laughs> so, right. You know, it's like, oh, look, there, there was, a, there was a, yet another reason to do well in school. It, it ended up paying off, <laughs> God, like 11 years later. <laughs> right. You might get a job out of it. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is, um, this will be kind of a generic question, but what is life like as an adjunct that is... I mean, you're working full-time equivalent hours, but you're working yeah. a bunch of part-time jobs put together. And so, what it, you know, what does your life look like doing that? Well, I mean, I think like any, you know, any instructor at the college level, I guess really K through 12 too. I mean, you know, the work is, I don't know if seasonal is the word, but uh, like right now, for example, you know, I don't, I just have the, the one class at, at New Hampshire right now. And then um, I'm on summer break at, at PCC since we're on, on a term system. So there, there are some lulls at times. Um, you know, the, I guess the other thing that's difficult about that is at, at PCC, I teach all year round. I teach summer term as well, but there's, you know, one, one time after winter break and one time after summer break where you don't get a paycheck because you haven't taught for two weeks. So that's, you know, you have to think about that and manage accordingly. I mean, I, I will say, one of the really great things about being an adjunct, other than the fact that I get to teach history, um, you know, more the logistics of the job, is is a lot of my classes have been online. I'd say about 50% of my workload is online. So it's allowed me to be flexible. I've been at home. You know, we have two young kids. My daughter's nine and my son just turned five. And I was able to stay home with them uh, two or three days a week. So 
A, it's just nice to be able to actually spend time with your kids. Um, And two, you save a lot of money not having to pay for daycare or preschool or things like that. So, um, yeah, so in that sense, I mean, the the flexibility of the the online aspect of it was really great in in terms of our kind of family situation and and being able to be around for them and taking the soccer practice and piano and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I mean, there is the nail biting that, you know, every term like, Oh, I hope my classes fill up with enough students or I'm just not going to make as much money for the next three months. Um, you know, so that's, that's the, certainly the biggest negative by far is that is always feeling like you, you don't know when or if the other shoe is going to drop. But in terms of, yeah, I guess the biggest positive is, is, yeah, I think that, that flexibility, I mean, I can work, from anywhere, essentially. I mean, basically, I, you know, I have Tuesdays and Thursdays is when I'm in the classroom. So there's a lot of times, you know, we could maybe take a long weekend. And if I just take my computer with me, I can, I can work at the beach or, or wherever. So it's stressful in, in the financial aspect of it. But in so many other ways, it, it really is an, a great job. And it's great for me, too, because I, I like to work somewhat independently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a very good job if you're that type of person, you know, I don't like to be micromanaged. I don't, and quite frankly, I don't want to manage other people. I kind of want to manage myself. Right. Um, and so, you know, if you have that kind of personality, you know, teaching, I think it in many ways fits that quite well. Yeah. I, I have the same kind of experiences and I am working full-time for Southern New Hampshire university. I, also work remotely though. So I'm actually, I work from home. I'm in Ohio. And so I do still have okay. that type of the, the adjunct life <laughs> is still uh, right. in, effect, in effect for me. Uh, the, the adjunct instructor lifestyle is a, it's a fact of life. I mean, the, as we all know, the academic job market is in collapse. Uh, there are very few tenure track positions available anymore. That's of course, you know, for, for us, a tenure track job as a history professor is kind of the brass ring that everybody has been trained to be reaching for. And those just don't happen very often anymore. And so the life that you describe as an adjunct is really kind of the norm these days. Oh yeah. I think, um, PCC, I want to say we're, it's somewhere like 70%, I think, of our classes are taught by adjuncts. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty unbalanced, to be right. sure. And unfortunately, I don't really see that changing anytime soon. Um, I would hope so. No, probably but, not. Yeah. Can I add something on that? Yes. I was going to say, just as a, for people who are listening, who are maybe grad students or, or looking to, to enter the field, if you can, I mean, certainly it's, you never know, but if possible, try to find a place that has a union because mm. that will make your life better in terms of benefits and, and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. The, all of the places where I was an adjunct, there was no union. <laughs> and so, and that was reflected yeah, yeah. in our pay and in our benefits. Yeah. So that is Absolutely. good advice. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't, I think, I mean, I've been, I've been reading some articles recently. There, there's definitely an uptick in unionization among, I think, all faculty, but certainly part-time faculty. And I mean, you know, at a certain point, if, you know, at PCC, for example, if you're 70% of the teaching workload, like you kind of, you have to use your leverage. I mean, we don't, mm-hmm. 
we don't have a lot of leverage because there's a lot of people with (laughs) advanced degrees who want to do this. So, I mean, they, they know that they could hire someone tomorrow if I, you know, decided to argue about how much I get paid, but at least through, through a union, you, you can use your leverage a bit, you know, we're actually, our contract ran out two weeks ago. So we're in the middle of negotiations to see what, what will happen. And, And one of the goals at least is we're trying to kind of, you know, make the argument that we should have equal pay for equal work. In, in, in essence, you know, adjuncts are, you know, I, I mean, I'm on committees. I go to our um, our discipline-centric meetings where we do assessment, and, and a lot of our other part-timers are very involved. And, you know, it's kind of, we're doing all the same stuff, teaching and being part of the college, but the, you know, obviously the pay and, and all those other, the discrepancy is quite large. So I will say, I, I definitely feel lucky having worked at many places and only one with the union that that definitely makes a difference. That's interesting that they have you involved with the uh, committee work and all of that. Cause that's usually one of the defining distinctions between the full-time faculty and the part-time faculty is that the part-time faculty usually doesn't do any of that committee type stuff. So it's interesting to hear right. that you are participating at some level in faculty governance. And that, that is one of the, goals of a lot of the unions for adjunct instructors is to try to be able to play a larger role in the university community because adjuncts tend to, if they're not working there full time, they're usually piecing together different jobs like you are and like I have in the past. And that means that you're not always available to students who need to talk about, you know, they're having a problem with an assignment and, or they need a letter of recommendation or, something along those lines where they need something from you outside of the hour that you're lecturing or whatever, <laughs> right. whatever it is you're doing in class. And so it's, 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 it affects students that they're not able to contact instructors. And so it's, it's interesting to hear in a place like your institution where there is a union that they do have you involved in some of those outside activities. And I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's good. I mean, I think some of it too is coming from the full timers who are feeling like, they were being really overburdened with, I mean, yeah. they keep getting ad, admin work kind of piled on them. And then there's all these committees and, you know, when you're only 30% of the, the FTE and asked to do all this stuff, like it, it, you get to the point where they just, they can't do it. And so I right. think, and I, I do I, think I, some of it is from a philosophical perspective of, yes, we should include them. But I think some of it is like, Oh my gosh, these full timers, they just don't have enough time to do all this stuff. That's that's true. They still got to teach a four four or a five five course load or something, and on top of all the right. work and all that. So right, there is um, that plays into it too. But you know, as long as it works out, where the if the union is able to secure to make sure that you know the the part timer is getting paid for all that work, then I suppose it works out for for everybody, even if the pay rate for the part timer is less than the pay rate would be for the full timer. Right. Yeah. It definitely it it definitely helps. Again, for students that are kind of breaking into the field here and wanting and wanting to kind of dip their toe in the adjunct pool, how did you actually apply to these institutions? Were they actually did they actually have like an online application, or was it just a matter of you just sent blind letters to all of the local community uh, colleges asking for asking to be put in their adjunct pool? How did you act? You know, how, well, how did you actually accomplish the the application process? As far as I remember, I think all of them were online applications. Um, you know, per, I, all of the local community colleges almost always have their, you know, they're accepting applications for their pool. 
Um, so I think that's, I think that was pretty much all of them. I, I, I did contact a few department chairs beyond just sending in the, um, the application online. And then, um, and then at University of Portland, obviously that was a little different situation since I actually knew people there. So that I just, I just went in and, mm-hmm. and basically said, Hey, if you ever have an opening, I'd, I'd love to teach here. And, and so that, that one just kind of worked out, but the, yeah, the rest of them was just, just doing, uh, applying for the faculty pools and, um, you know, and, and then usually reaching out with an email or a phone call to the department chair and just kind of checking in. Do you have any last comments about what life is like as an adjunct that you think students might be interested in hearing about that we haven't discussed already? I think with all the adjuncts, it's, it's, we all do it because we, we just love it so much, you know, we yeah. love the topic that we teach. And I think we're willing to deal with some of this stresses and the financial issues that can come along with that. I think to a large degree, you know, knock on wood, I've, I've been pretty lucky in terms of building up a relatively stable um, number of classes. I mean, I usually, again, assuming I don't, things don't get canceled for low enrollment, I, I typically teach in a calendar year, I'd say 13 to 16 classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, you know, and again, I think working at PCC and having union pay makes this more feasible. Yeah. But I, I, I think that's a, if you can get in that range as an adjunct, that's, I, I feel like that's a level of financial comfort that you can sustain yourself at. I will say it's, it is very helpful to have a, a wife who has a, a full-time job. You <laughs> <So laughs> right. can uh, yeah. make up some of that difference. You know, I, I mean, I, I, you know, for, for single, if you're single and kind of starting out, you're, you might have to have another job too on, when you're getting started. I mean, I was, I was lucky enough that I had that kind of cushion to, to build up, you know, cause it took basically about three, four years to get to a point where I was in that kind of 13 to 16 range where I feel comfortable you know we 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 know how to live on this this budget now so that's of course why when things get canceled it is quite stressful because you're you're kind of you've you've built up to this point where you you have your budget and everything but it's um i don't know it's not for the faint at heart i think sometimes (laughs) (laughs) right and it's definitely i mean it's it certainly is a career that you do not get into for the money, but I guess that kind of explains no. that, that describes all of history. <laughs> so you do Pretty it. Much, like, yeah. I mean, we're yeah. all, we all do it because we love it. And I, and I still love it. I love teaching. I love being in the classroom, especially. And, it, and I love the fact that, you know, when I'm not grading or something that I can be reading a history book and that's, that's work. <laughs> that's <Right>. great. <laughs> it's so much better right. than, than cold calling people to try to, to sell them a tour to, to Europe or something. It's, it's great to sit down with the book and be like, this is great. I can, I can integrate this into my, my lectures or, you know, just any, anything I can add to my, my knowledge base, which, you know, it's funny. I think, especially when you go to grad school and you start working, you know, you're, you're a quote unquote expert on your, your topic and expert in history, but man, you realize how much there is to know and how little mm-hmm. you ultimately do know right. in the end. Because with a topic like history, of course, it's, you know, it's, it, it's so expansive, um, you know, that it's, it's hard to get a handle on it. But 
right. um, yeah, the work, the work itself is, is great. It's the, it's the other extraneous pragmatic stuff that, that is not the best, but if you love history, I mean, it's, it's a great job. Right. Well, great. Well, thank you for uh, explaining that to us. Do you have any recommendations for us uh, today? Um, yeah, actually. So again, this, this, I think was one of those moments where I realized, gosh, I do not know enough about topic X. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of my, as I said before, one of my focuses has been U.S. history, mainly 20th century. Um, and I, and I just was definitely feeling like my kind of reading on African-American history was, um, was lacking. Uh, so last year, um, I read, the Half Has Never Been Told by Edward Baptist. It's about um, the subtitle Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially kind of making this economic argument, in essence, that kind of America's jump to a global industrial power was essentially built on the backs of slave labor. Um, and I mean, kind of even makes a larger argument. I mean, kind of the whole West, because obviously most of that cotton was going to England. Um, and being turned into cloth, and they're making money off of that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely, you know, it's an economic history, but I have to say the whole time I was reading it, I was like, this guy's such a good writer. I mean, it was really captivating, and he, he made it personal in many ways. And I actually, I don't know if you've been reading um, that 1619 project on the New York Times that yeah. they've been doing over the past month or so. They had basically an article, they, they referenced Baptists and some other historians kind of talking about that economic um, argument. And then just this summer, um, I, I got a, another book called The Warmth of Other Suns. I don't know if you've read that. It's about the uh, Great Migration. Oh, yeah, I read that. I want to say I read that about a year and a half ago. I, I loved it. It was a great book. Yeah, it's really, I mean, she's a terrific writer as well. And I kind of like you know, the format of, of doing those, it's kind of oral history. She follows three different people from three different states in the South. And then they each go to, one goes to LA, one goes to Chicago, and one goes to New York. So she follows these three individuals from, I think the earliest ones from the 30s. Um, and then basically, I think until they pass away, which is usually, I think, in the 90s or so. Um, and so she kind of intersperses these chapters of just following these individual stories and then she'll do a chapter on, okay, this is context of what it looks like in California in the 50s or something. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it was a really also a, a fun narrative um, kind of structure. And, and, you know, for me, not real kind of knowing enough about that topic, it was, it was great. Yeah, so those, those are definitely two books that I have really got a lot out of and, and really enjoyed reading. Those are great choices. The... Uh, the Half Has Never Been Told is one that's been on my to-read list for quite some time, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. But the, the warmth, warmth of Other we'll Suns. Do. Yeah, I, I will do that. Um, and, and yeah, the, the Warmth of Other Suns, that was an amazing book. Um, I, yeah. Uh, it was something I kind of picked up on a whim. Um, and it, yeah, it just it kind of blew my mind. <laughs> I was thinking about it a long, for a yeah. long time after I uh, finished it. It's a great book. Yeah. I'm going to recommend yeah. a book. This week also, um, I'm going to recommend the most recent addition to the Oxford History of the United States series, um, which is the series that has like James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom and um, 
you know, Gordon Wood, okay. Liberty, that big mass, that series of big massive books <laughs> that are kind of like the, <laughs> supposed to be the authoritative history of the United States. The most recent version or um, addition to it is Richard White's The Republic for Which It Stands, which is on the Reconstruction and Gilded Age eras. Uh, what, that was always oh. one of the big holes in the series was uh, McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom ends in 1865, and then the next book that they have so far is um, David Kennedy's Freedom from Fear, which is uh, the Depression and World War II. <laughs> so there's this massive oh, right. gap from the late 19th and early yeah. 20th century. Important gap. It's a big gap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was a lot yeah. going on in that 50-year period or so. There were uh, a few things, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dog's barking here. Okay. So anyway, so this attempts to fill that hole a bit by talking about the Reconstruction and Gilded Age. And Reconstruction has always been one of my favorite periods to talk about. My MA thesis was on um, California during Reconstruction. And so I've been looking forward to the Oxford history book on um, on Reconstruction. So I'm very excited this came out. And I haven't finished it yet. Yeah. But it's, it's a good read. I mean, they're all, they're all good reads. They're all authoritative. And they're all very well researched and very well written. And so this fits well with all of the other volumes in that series. But uh, I'm just going to call that one out because it's the new one. And it's on a topic that I, that I really am interested in uh, as a research topic. So anyway, anyone check it out. Richard White, The Republic for Which It Stands. I will, I'm going to read that. Okay, excellent. <laughs> All right, well, the publishers now owe both of us um, royalties or, uh, I don't know, some sort of advertising dollars or something. So anyway, that's yeah, a marketing budget. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for joining me today, Eric. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please shoot me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Eric Johnson, I am Rob Denning. Aloha! And that actually just reminded me. I'm going to be right back because I have to go unlock my front door so that my son can get through the door when he gets off the bus in a few minutes. So I'm going to be back in like 30 seconds. I'll be right back. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. You, no, no uh, you mentioned your nine-year-old daughter and I have a nine-year-old son and I thought, oh no, <laughs> that reminds me. <laughs> the door's locked. Usually I go out and meet him at the bus, but uh, the, the,